Welcome to episode number four of Retail Initiative, the podcast for retail entrepreneurs to learn, grow, and be inspired by retail experts and other successful retailers just like you. And today, a unique episode, we have Alan from Springboard Retail. Springboard is a cloud-based point-of-sale solution based in Boston, Massachusetts. I almost said Texas, but Massachusetts. Um, And they have built a phenomenal product that's helping retailers learn how to grow their business. But this is not an episode that is geared towards selling you a point of sale. Really, we dive into some of the unique things that a retailer can do to grow their business. They have such a unique story and such a deep background in retail. It was so good getting to talk to them and learn from Alan about what the retailers that they work with are doing to grow. And he gets to share some of that wisdom with us. So let's get right into it. So we talk a ton with independent retailers and you know I've really enjoyed recording those episodes, but sometimes it's nice to change it up and talk with people that are working to solve problems in the independent retail community. Um, and so what today I wanted to do is, is have a pretty deep conversation with Alan about some of the challenges that, that Springboard Retail is facing. Um, but really what I, what I think is unique about Alan and his story um, and Springboard Retail story is, is its roots in retail before they were ever a software. Um, so Alan, why don't you tell me a little bit about pre-Springboard Retail. We'll get into what Springboard Retail is and what it does and, and what all you do. But I, I'd love to hear kind of the background of pre-software, where this came from, because I think that's pretty special. Sure. Um, so even prior to my time at the retail enterprise, uh, the story of the retailer that um, I, I worked with uh, in the pink stores, goes back about 25 years um, to Lily Pulitzer, actually. It was a really well-known brand uh, in the middle of the 20th century, and um, they had fallen on hard times and were acquired in the early 90s by a private equity firm that wanted to sort of revive the brand and bring it back. And their plan to do that was to build build up the brand with brick-and-mortar, uh, what they called signature stores, which were affiliates um, of Lily Pulitzer. So... Um, Gordon Russell um, founded in the pink stores about 25 years ago and um, opened up the first signature store in Nantucket and quickly started to grow that signature store footprint. Um, So I I joined in the pink stores um, back in 2006 and working in, you know, I had my hands in everything, operations, uh, you know, inventory, you know, uh, helping in the warehouse, uh, helping in accounting and operations, going to the stores, doing physical inventories, and, and you know, lots of other stuff. Um, I, I, re, uh, I redid the floor in the Nantucket store <laughs> <laughs> when they remodeled that store in 2008. So, um, so, so you know, have that retail background and kind of did a little bit of everything. And our and Gordon, who I mentioned, is uh, you know really very forward thinking and was it was and was constantly investing in in you know technology and. Um, that that was a big thing, you know. Finding systems that really worked well for us was a challenge as retailers. I bet. I bet. Yep. Yeah. So if you don't mind, before we get we we jump ahead too much into in the pink and Lily Pulitzer and eventually Springboard, um, why don't you tell, you know, if if our audience doesn't necessarily know a ton about those stores, mm-hmm. um, like what kind of businesses they were, what the product types were, who the customer was, um, and and kind of help frame that piece. Sure. So. Lily Pulitzer is what I would call a resort retailer. Um, they sell primarily women's clothing. Um, they did dabble in men's briefly. 
and I think sell a little bit of men's pro- product, but it's really a classic women's luxury resort wear retailer. Uh, and, and kids also, like so little mm-hmm. girls and, and children's clothing. So um, it does really well in resort markets. So, uh, for example, our stores were uh, in Nantucket, Cape Cod, and the islands, very summery, kind of beachy, resorty locations. Yeah. Um, and the brand also sort of originated in Palm Beach, Florida, which, of course, is, you know, the ultimate resort destination. So, yeah. um, so it's got that really kind of fun... Um, it's a really fun brand, you know. They're really so. Lily Pulitzer also is really known for those super colorful prints. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you see someone on the street wearing Lily Pulitzer, you know exactly um, what that brand is. And actually, um, my uh, Gordon also always used to say, and I really like this analogy: Lily Pulitzer was Harley Davidson for women. <laughs> it, it was like the the really uh, really loyal, really. Um, you know, it says a lot about your identity. I think when you're in that clothing, so it was really fun. Um, you know, resort and that sort of atmosphere is kind of what that clothing was and, and is still. Yeah. So these stores started and they were really, um, you know, founded, or I guess, around Lily Pulitzer. Yes. Um, so they were signature stores uh, and required to carry, I think, a certain percentage of Lily Pulitzer product in the store. So that was pri- they were primarily Lily Pulitzer stores yeah. um, with, with a mix of some non-Lily vendors, you know, thrown in, you know, shoe vendors and other things like that, but primarily Lily Pulitzer clothing. Yeah. So these in the pink stores, you know, how many locations, um, you know, when, when it at, at its peak, um, and I guess we'll get to some of the, the changes that happened, mm-hmm. um, but at its peak, how many locations was it? At peak, it was, I think, uh, 13 locations and uh, plus the web. The, the web was a big piece of it as well, but uh, sure. thir- 13 locations, brick and mortar up and down Massachusetts. Yeah. So gosh, finding the right tools, you know, I, a lot of our audience, um, why they're here is, you know, they're independent retailers. And a lot of them aren't, aren't going to be 13 locations. Some might, um, but even, you know, two, three, four locations. Um, I, I think we both would say that a lot of the same challenges that a four location business faces, and of course, it's magnified a little bit once you get that large. Um, but, you know, I guess there's the two sides of inventory management and there's the two sides of operating that kind of business. There's like how you do it physically, like pen and paper. If we just threw a computer out of the window, which I'm sure you guys wanted to do sometimes. Um, if you just threw a computer out of the window, how did you do things? But then once you started to evolve software and systems, um, what did that piece look like for In the Pink? And then, of course, that leads to you know, you guys did develop a software, so clearly it wasn't working perfectly. Um, but what did it look like to go from two to three to four to 10, like system and operations wise? Sure. That, that's a great question. And, you know, we started with one. So we went through the, the challenges that, you know, a retailer of any size really faces as we grew from one to 13. So the thing I have to mention operationally, that was the the biggest challenge for our stores was seasonality. So you take Nantucket, for example, where between Memorial Day and Labor Day, it's crazy. You know, the population of the island swells from 10,000 people in the off season to about 70,000 people Jeez. during the summertime. So the expression that we, that our, that Gordon always used was, uh, you know, every day is a week, every week is a month and every month is a quarter. And, mm-hmm. and you're, you're doing 90% of your sales plan and your, and your business really for the year between Memorial Day and Labor Day. So wow. that puts demands 
on you operationally that are that are challenging from an inventory perspective, certainly, right? Um, sure. And and to chime in here, you know, in case our listener, um, you know, if if you might be thinking, gosh, well, you know, I, I'm in, you know, we're based in Houston. And like, you know, we, we have the, we're literally the polar opposite. All of our people are actually going to you to escape the heat. Um, but I think that that like holiday season is really probably the equivalent of, you know, people that really need to be planning, preparing for that holiday season. So even as you're hearing him talk about the, these summer months and, you know, that, that week and a day, um, you know, tra- translate that to your business with looking, looking directly at the holidays. That's a great point, you know, and you have, um, there are times of the year where you have to make the most of the opportunities that you have in terms of traffic and the, the holiday season is, is a good example of that. And we did have a store also uh, on Newbury Street in Boston, um, which was a little more stable, you know, year, you know, year round. Um, but what, what that forced us to do was be very strategic about how we allocated inventory across the stores. Um, very strategic about the inventory that we that we bought, obviously, um, and and you know looking carefully and quickly uh, at performance. Um, yeah, and you know reacting to that. So whether that was moving something from one store to another, um, if if something was not selling in Nantucket but it was selling really well uh, in Martha's Vineyard, we would maybe make that move of that inventory. Um, or, you know, Boston to Cape Cod and, you know, because the markets are a little different. The Newbury Street market is different than the Nantucket market. And even the Cape Cod markets are different. So um, really looking at the the inventory assets that we had, because there was so much time pressure um, and, uh, you know, a lot riding on that. So really carefully analyzing the inventory that we had and um, it, making the most of that, you know, that, that, that the critical time that we had to, to move it. Um so inventory, you know, for sure was it was a big operational challenge. Staffing, of course, is a is a huge yeah. operational challenge. Hundred percent. And similarly around the holidays, you know, where you kind of need to bulk up and bulk down. You know, we would we would our team would expand in the in the summer. You know, we'd hire all that seasonal help, and then it would contract um, after the summer months. And we had some stores that would close seasonally, uh, like Nantucket, for example, would close after you know, sort of mid December through. I think beginning of April it would close because there was just really no one on the island um, at that point. So um, we would then move all that inventory and distribute it to the other stores that remained open uh, wow. to, to, to move it. So, Yeah, so you really, I mean, I think a theme that, that I'm hearing is like you really have to obsess over your business. You know, it's almost like your children, like you, hopefully a good parent is just analyzing every every day what is best for their children at all times, like what they're eating. And, um, and Alan and I, before this episode, we, we both have um, new kids at home. And so I think we're, that's, that's kind of front of mind for both of us. So if that's not you, I'm sorry for the, <laughs> um, we're not sleeping as much. So, um, but uh, yeah, you really, you really have to obsess over um, what's selling, what's not, and then, and then make some changes on, on how to do that. Um, whether that's, of course, your your plans for that next season um, or a few seasons down the road. Um, but what were some things that you saw, like just some success, things that helped in the pink um, when you were in it? Let's say you know we're, we're mid season. You have that. You have your stuff. Um, and let's just like talk about it like it was just two stores, mm-hmm. um, and you had some items that weren't selling super well. Um, what were some things that, that they would do 
that you would do when you were a part of that team um, that you know you could look at a few reports and and see certain things and what were some sh- some shifts you made so what data were you looking at and then what were some shifts that that you guys made to to work around those problems yeah so one of the magical things that you can try and do you know markdowns to a certain extent are inevitable right um and it's really trying to find the right uh, the right balance and not you know not creating a big markdown culture at your stores you know um and so there were a few things that we did to 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 try and navigate around that, you know, one example that I sort of already mentioned was moving inventory strategically around stores, and that would be report that would be data driven and report driven. Looking yeah. at sell through, looking at inventory on hand um, in Nantucket, for example, three week sell through um, on hand. We had a report that we would run called poorest deepest, which um, poorest performing styles that we are deepest in from an inventory cost perspective. So items that we've had on the floor for at least that three-week period, mm-hmm. um, we have a lot of inventory. We're heavily invested in it. Uh, the sell-through is maybe less than 10%, so it's just not moving. Yeah. It's heading to markdown land. Um, so rather than immediately try and mark that product down uh, to move it, we would possibly move it to another store where there was actually more positive performance. Like you might have... Mm-hmm. You know, Nantucket might not be it might not be doing well there, but maybe on Newbury Street in Boston, it's you've got eighty percent sell through and you're almost out of it. So move that whole style up to Newbury Street, where there's For a sure. you know and eat the ten dollars shipping cost instead of taking a few hundred dollars in markdowns on that product is yeah. is a big win if you can do that. The other kind of creative thing that we would do was um, sort of gamification with the sales staff. Um, and we did that in a few ways. Uh, one example was just sort of taking that same report I just mentioned about sell-through is we would look at those poor performers. Another tactic we would use is to have the employees start wearing um, the poor performers. So, oh gosh, that makes such a difference. Yeah, so they're, they're putting on the dress that nobody's buying. Then all of a sudden, you know, uh, someone's coming in and saying, ooh, that, that's a great dress. I'd like to try that on. And then you, and you can... You know, turn a, a, a loser maybe into, you know, not a huge winner, but at least not as much of a loser as it was before. Sure. So, um, and those those things can definitely make a difference. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, that's a huge thing that it almost gets surprising when retailers don't do it, is having employees, if they're on your floor, they need to be wearing everything on your floor. Um and even, you know, we know like Big Box isn't particularly doing well right now, but there's a reason, you know, we all had those summer jobs. Chances are, if you're listening to this, like you had the same summer job in retail that um, that both Alan and I did. Um, and there was a reason we got that, like, you know, every season we got 10 items at 60% off. It, it was so we could stock our wardrobe with the latest stuff. For sure. Um, and, and even if that means like you're giving clothes or... Um, you know, letting employees, it's a little weird, but, you know, a lot of stores will let them wear stuff on the floor and then put it back, you know, especially if you're not in Houston, it's sweaty, don't do that. But, you know, if you're in a place where that's not going to be a problem, um, that's such an easy way to move merchandise um, is people see it and it just looks so much better on and they, um, especially if you have like an attractive staff that your customer wants to be like then that, that can be a huge piece. And I, I'd be willing to bet that in the pink, just culturally, it seems like they'd have a staff that definitely fit around the, the culture kind of, the of the brand. Yeah. You know, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. 
So you guys used a ton of data, um, but you know you, what you've told me, you know, offline is, was about just at the end of the day, there just there was a ton of problems that that you guys were running into that you couldn't really solve um, with, with what was at at your disposal. Um, so you know, tell me about you guys looking for that for those solutions, what you were doing um, to solve them. And then, of course, I'd love to, to get in how that led to Springboard, but um, what were the problems you were running into that you couldn't really find a solution for? Yep. Um, you know, we we relied heavily on data, as, as I've, you know, said, and we struggled with some of the systems that we used, um, the ease of getting that data syncing across stores up to the mothership database, you know, um, in real time. So you'd have all these stores, you know, on islands. I mean, and literally on islands, but like, you know, in that sort of old architecture. And what year are we talking about in this? This is back in, you know, between the years 2002 and 2007-ish. Yeah. And so to give some context here, you know, today in 2018, like every POS system's cloud-based, everything is on a browser or an iPad app. Um, But at that time, even in the 2000s, most point of sale inventory control solutions were server based and what that means is that it literally lived on a computer in your store so um, in order to connect multiple stores you had to have a pretty talented IT guy um, and and deal with a lot of complication you know it, it, it was it was a little bit of a mess so um, I just want to give some context you know time wise to what you're saying because yeah. today it's like well, what do you, what do you, why is that an issue and, um, and flying that IT guy to Nantucket was very expensive so that <laughs> was not fun I bet. <laughs> uh, so yeah no that, that that's great context you know we were using those those old um, you know systems and and uh, you know that that are still out there actually too like that which blows my mind but they're still out there um, so these stores were were isolated in a sense that they were they were um, you know, in that client-server relationship, they were kind of on their own and periodically syncing up data back to the to the mothership. And things would happen. You know, servers would crash or, you know, polling, which was that process to get that data synced up. That would fail. That would stop. So Gordon's in the back office trying to analyze what's going on in these stores and, and doesn't have complete data. It doesn't have the, you know, Real, it's certainly not real time, but sometimes is significantly delayed. And in that really highly seasonal environment, it, that's an impairment that you can't, you know, get that data as quickly as you need it um, because you're really you're very quickly reacting to it and making decisions around it. Um, and so, for sure, there were there were just technical challenges and annoyances. IT was was a much bigger expense because of that. Um, so, so data and, and data sort of playing nicely and syncing between the systems was a big challenge. The other big piece of it, and I think the other, you know, one of the things that really led to the stores being successful and doing well was having all of the stores really playing together and working together from uh, an inventory perspective um, and a sales perspective. So each store had its own sales plan and was motivated to hit that sales plan. But one of the, you know, the, the key things now that a lot of retailers are doing, but back then, back in 2005 or, you know, two or three, it was not as common, yeah. is making that inventory available to sell to every store. So someone in Nantucket who wants to buy that dress and it's, 
you don't have it in their size. You don't have it in a size six in Nantucket, but you can see you have it in Boston. What you want to do for that customer is not have them leave the store or, you know, mm-hmm. don't tell them go buy it online or go to the Boston store, which is what would happen at retailers at that time. Like, oh, just you can maybe drive to that store and buy it if, if you want, but um, which is not how you increase sales, you know, or, or make customers happy. So for sure. we really wanted uh, all the stores to be able to leverage that inventory and, uh, and, and make orders. And for that to really work well, uh, th- that data needed to be accurate. Um, and it's similar to the web. It's not, not just about making that data available to other stores. It's making it available to a thriving website that we were running as well. Um, and if that underlying inventory data is not accurate, uh, which is the challenge that we were facing with our system sort of being a little, being antiquated, not a little, but being antiquated and out of date, um, we had that challenge of not maximizing our opportunity on the web, I think. You're running into these issues. Um, you know, what did it look like? Like, I can't fathom getting to that point that's like, you know what we should probably do is instead of, you know, searching and searching and searching and searching, let's just make something. Um, like, first off, who actually said it? I would have loved to have been in that room when someone was like, what if we just did this? Because um, that, I mean, to a degree, like, that's a crazy idea. That's just yes. That's nuts. Yes, it's um, uh, I, I, it's it's very difficult to build a point of sale system. So <laughs> it's not. Looking back in hindsight, we I don't think we realized how hard it was going to be actually. But it was um, you know, it, what's interesting actually is that you know, so uh, let me talk a little bit about the web. Um, back in two thousand one, Lily Pulitzer was not yet online, direct to consumer, mm-hmm. um, and they really weren't in brick and mortar either. They were, they were exclusively a wholesale company. So that opened up opportunities for many different signature store affiliates, you know, Gordon and then other companies as well. It g- gave them the opportunity to create their own websites that sold Lily Pulitzer product. That's great. Gordon was, was sort of first to, to, to the market with, with that and grew a, a very large and successful online business. Um, you know, and, and and his website was was sort of the place where you went to buy Lily Pulitzer online. So that was a big driver for us um, from a systems perspective as well, because you know I, I talked about using that inventory, and we were hooking up to. We used Retail Pro in the past. We used Counterpoint. We were trying to bolt on those inventory connectors to those legacy systems. We actually, in the early days, before. Uh, deciding to build springboard we we there was a and this is actually before my time too just to be clear the e-commerce piece here that i'm going to talk about but it's part of the story um they built a proprietary e-commerce system actually this this is before the rise of shopify and you know um and and those you know now it's it's that would be crazy to think that a retailer would do that but um they still do (laughs) (laughs) some still do uh but E-commerce really wasn't, it, some people were still laughing at it at that time and thinking it was, you know, kind of a, a fad or, you know, wasn't going to become a real business. Oh, for sure. That just stopped. It kind of stopped. A, a couple years ago, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, we built our own proprietary platform and um, Gordon and Jay is our other co-founder. We were always, um, you know, they, they were always interested in technology and, and using technology to push the business forward. And, and initially the e-commerce uh you know, the e-commerce piece is what they started with. And uh, 
But then it also became clear that there needed to be a retail management system that connected to that e-commerce system that um, was also operational. And um, and ours weren't. You know, uh, we, we tried a few different systems and none really met our our requirements. We felt like if you had maybe one store that you were well served in the market or if you had hundreds of stores that there were systems out there built mm-hmm. to solve your problems. But for us, we had 13. We had an integrated website. We really had to build our own thing because there wasn't something out there that was built for us. And so that that's how the decision to build Springboard was born. And by the time we started working on that piece, Shopify was rising. You know, Magento was was really getting firmly established. And, and, um, and, and it became clear that we would probably have a much more difficult time trying to commercialize an e-commerce platform mm-hmm. than we would going for the other opportunity of a retail management system, which no one seemed to be working on at that time. A really nice cloud, modern uh, retail management system built for multi-store. So that's that's how the idea of Springboard was born. So this might sound a little frank, but I, I think especially for someone who may have been in business five, six, seven, eight years and has two to three locations, they probably bought a point of sale back then that, that could do multi-store. Mm-hmm. Um, that certainly isn't like a new feature. Um, so what what distinction would you say, Like, because there were tools out there, there were, um, but I, I think we both know that there were, were certainly inadequacies that needed to be addressed. So like what... When, like when you say that there really wasn't something for that 13 lo- location business, um, there may have been tools out there that could have addressed some of what your problems were. They like could handle multiple locations, add inventory, purchasing, transfer between them, some of those ba- like that that basic feature. Um, but what was that difference of that that mul- the multi store product that I'm describing and what needs you guys had that 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 had to be filled with something new? Yeah, you know, one of the, I think one of the things that is unique in the way that Springboard was developed is that because we came from retail, a lot of that retail uh, experience is sort of baked into our, um, you know, DNA a little bit. So uh, data and reporting, I think, is a huge piece of it. Um, there, there were, there were not, certainly not systems that gave retailers the level of insight into their data um, that we needed personally. Um, we, we were doing, um, we were pulling out all of our data into Excel and, and you know, in the before Springboard and running the company off of pivot tables <laughs> and, and, da- and data dumps, you know. We'd have to schedule, and actually the system, because it didn't support point-in-time inventory, we would have to schedule these data dumps at, um, you know, midnight, at the end of a month or at the end of a week, for example, so that we have those snapshots of, uh, of inventory data points. I don't even want to know like, how slow that computer must have been it trying was, to run Excel like a retail analytics yeah. platform. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. So, um, and we'd take that and we'd you know, go pull those numbers and put them into this planning spreadsheet that we had. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. We had, we had a tool that was supposed to be helping us uh, run the business and we were we were running the business in Excel. So and not that's not to knock Excel. I mean Excel has a purpose, but uh, we we wanted to be able to be in the system where we were living and and you know using and you mm-hmm. know and and see those insights and that analysis right there. 
For um, sure. I mean, kudos for using Excel. I think a lot of retailers that are smart, um, you know, that really can supplement a lot of inadequacies and whatever their existing systems are, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're smart and know how to use it. But I think that the, the issue becomes the amount of time that you spend working on a computer that, you know, eventually you have 150,000 lines of data, if not more, and that slows on your computer and you're, you know, running these formulas yep. and then trying to find that awful pound error <laughs> from something. <laughs> yes, um, and we've all been there. Yeah, and, and, and so I, I I definitely get where that data piece came from. So you, you guys came up with this crazy idea. Someone in the room was... Um, I can only assume a few drinks in and was like, let's just, let's make this point of sale. So, so you, you get this idea, you start building it out. Um, you know, what, what took the software from not even a business, like a software literally built for you to then something for someone else. What took it from that to, to where we are now? Yeah. Um, so that might be broad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, and I'll, I'll cover kind of the, the high notes here. But we had an advantage in that we were solving some real operational problems that helped us when we were designing the, the, the features. And the, we, we had a pretty good template for how we ran the business already where we knew what we needed to do. And we, we knew some of the problems that we needed to solve. So, um, and, and, w- and one thing I should say, too, is that in the early days, we initially thought that maybe we would partner with another company that already had some of the inventory and ERP built out. Mm-hmm. And we had sort of developed the, the point of sale interface. And, and we decided pretty quickly that technically for it to really work, we needed to own the whole thing. We needed to build all of it. So we made the decision back in 2010 uh, after we had already developed the point of sale to build out the rest of the of the suite and, and the tooling around it. Um, and uh, so we launched in alpha in August of 2011 um, actually, I remember. Um, when you, when, can you al- what is alpha? what alpha means? <laughs> what is alpha? I think people know uh, beta, but yes, beta, different. <laughs> beta is before, uh, alpha is before beta. So alpha is when, um, you know, you, you move into the house before the roof is on. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of, that's how I would describe alpha. We were not quite ready for prime time. Um, and, uh, but uh, I mentioned earlier that seasonality, we wanted to get, the system tested a little bit during some of that peak. That's also something that you might think is crazy. Like, why would you, why would you get a system in there at peak when you're possibly putting sales at risk? Um, uh, you know, uh, it, but I, I really am glad that we did it because it put a little bit of pressure um, on the system to see where the holes were. You know what I mean? So we we launched it in August of 2011, and. Uh, got it out there into the real world with real users across multiple stores, um, you know, like the 13 stores and really got that instant feedback. What do we need to fix real users using it? One of the real advantages that we had also is because of our Lily Pulitzer connection, we were connected naturally to other Lily Pulitzer affiliates actually. So, um, and we're still very grateful for this, but there was a group of, of Lily Pulitzer affiliates that that agreed to join on as beta customers for us to, to really test it out with us. Um, and we had a couple of other early beta customers as well that weren't affiliates, but that were that were also um, willing to sort of be on the bleeding, the very bleeding edge <laughs> uh, of, of technology. So we had a, a good little beta group of, of these retailers that were 
outside of our perspective, right? So we sort of knew how we did things and how we wanted the system to operate, but we wanted outside input as well from other use cases and other customers that would help us um, see maybe things that weren't important to us, but that are important to the rest of the market or to other customers that we maybe had blind spots for. So that beta period over, um, and it was long, you know, this is, it's, it's, this is not a super fat, like this, you know, that was August, 2011 was alpha beta was 2012 and early 2013. Uh, Mm -hmm. it takes time to really refine things and get it right. And it was important to us before we brought springboard to, to market really launched it and tried to grow it, that we had product market fit, you know, that we knew, if we were going to turn on sales and marketing or really try and grow, um, we didn't want to do it on a bad product. We really wanted to take our time and make sure that we had the product right before we, before we turned it on. Um, sure. sure. So that's, that's kind of how that that's, that's the overview. There's, there's, you know, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I guess it, it'd be appropriate, you know, the, the goal isn't, necessarily to sell springboard retail on people um if anything what i want them to do is be um, one inspired around the you know the things that they can be doing to grow their businesses whether it's data they can be looking at or a process they can put in place whether it's in new tools or even their existing tools um to be honest but you know why don't why don't you explain some of what exactly springboard retail is you know beyond a place to do transactions and manage inventory because the word manage, even just saying manage inventory, if I ask a hundred retailers, I'm going to get a hundred different answers. Um, so what does that mean to you? And like, just broadly go into like, what is springboard retail at the, at the highest level? Yeah. So at the highest level, it's, um, you know, our, our goal was for it to be a retail management platform. Um, and for the, the retailer, a, the operational heartbeat of the uh, of their stores of their company. Um, so that's everything from on the front end in the stores, um, transacting, um, taking sales. It's like that you small s- piece. Yeah, that 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 little that little thing that makes the whole thing work. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so uh, you know, on the front end in the stores, managing um, sales, managing inventory in the stores. Um, when we, like you said, talking about managing inventory and what that means, um, there's there's integrated purchasing tools as well. So that was something really important to us, and it's something that maybe not a lot of retailers do, but that I highly encourage people to do is get those purchase orders in their system so that they're able to report on um, what, the, what kind of their liability, like what they have on order. You know, a lot of people don't really know or, or have that visibility into what they have on order. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge piece. When we do inventory plans for people, um, you know, for for our work with Streamline Retail, that's not retail initiative, but when we do inventory plans for people, um, if those purchase orders aren't there, whether it's in Springboard or a different system, you know, we can see what's selling, we can see whatever um, whatever's performing well, but we can't actually give you an accurate open to buy at all if we don't see, you know, of course what you have on hand, but also what's coming. Um, and so I think that's a, a great point that is so simple. Uh, you know, if a retailer is going to make like one small shift in their business, I would say like one of the you know top two things that you can do, top three things that you can do is start tracking your purchases. You, you make that trip to market. If you, if you have someone who does your inventory, amazing, hand them that stack of papers and, and have them start inputting that stuff on that, that trip 
from that trip to market. Um, and that helps in, you know, from inventory planning to, you know, f- actually planning your finances, um, when, when debt's going to be paid off, all of those things is so important. And I think, I think tracking your purchasing is really at the center of that. Um, so that's a great point. Absolutely. And, you know, knowing, um, if you have too much or too little product is key to avoiding problems, either missing sales or in the case of having too much product, um, being over leveraged and having to, you know, mark down, like having too much product can be a problem. So if you're not yeah. <laughs> really, so if you're not putting that data in, um, ahead of time and looking at what you have on order and not knowing like when you go to buy something, it's almost like, you know, having a credit card and not, not knowing what you're like, just going out and buying stuff and not knowing how much you've spent on the credit card. Like you should kind of know where, where you're at. Can I afford this? You know, it's sort of the same Mm -hmm. thing with purchasing in the store. Like, can you afford this? Um, and you really don't know unless you're putting it in. Um, 100%. So that, that's, that's a big piece of it for sure. Um, and uh, that that sort of the purchasing flow, so inventory management, you know, purchasing and receiving, really kind of covering the life cycle of an item. You, you buy it, you bring it into the inventory in the store, um, you have it on hand, you sell it, um, and so there's that kind of whole inventory management. In the case of multi-store, there's moving inventory between mm-hmm. stores. There's uh, counting inventory. You know, uh, retailers typically do this once a year. They'll do a physical. Um, so you can do that in Springboard, uh, make periodic adjustments to inventory based on damages or, you know, shrinkage and sure. So you've got lots of tools that help you, um, manage inventory built in. Um, you've got a reporting suite as well. Um, that is, is we've talked a lot about that already today, but just analyzing that data, really understand how you're performing, um, against sales plans, against, um, you know, you're looking at your inventory performance, uh, your inventory balances on hand, on order. Uh, analyzing your customers is is huge. One hundred percent. So, who are my best customers? Segmenting them, you know, contacting them. So we interface out to email marketing and loyalty. Um, that's a big piece nurturing those customer relationships. We even have some really nice in-store tools that help sales reps. Um, really get a good picture of their, that we call it the customer dashboard, but give, give you a really good picture of who that customer is so that you can give them a higher level of service when they're in the store. So it's, it's sort of another example of using data to help drive the business forward. Yeah. And gosh, like you were, you know, you were showing me that customer dashboard and I thought what was really cool about that is, especially if you have your, your website integrating, your web orders are coming in and with that what I liked about it was like that was right in the point of sale and there was this, you added the customer and there was this button that you clicked and it brought up like this visualization I'm showing their, their sales, but it also listed like what their common sizes were and their, their orders were. And I think um, as we move towards omni-channel, you know, online in-store, possibly social um, events, you know, multiple sales channels and kind of bridging those together is it lets a sales associate um, really see how good a customer is. Because I think a lot of times, you know, Lily Pulcher and In the Pink may be a really good example of this, is you could have had a distant customer who was very, very loyal, but your sales associate never would have known because they were, they were loyal on the web. And they on their vacation, it was a big deal to visit that store. And had that sales associate had a dashboard and seen the amount of volume that that person's done, they're able to, to treat them almost like they're VIPs. You know, a, a VIP. You know, yeah. I, I even think back, to me, like I love the brand Patagonia, um, and 
for the longest time, when they were first opening stores, they didn't have anything near where I lived. And so I was in Chicago and I went to the store. And I mean, for me, it was a brand I was very connected to. And, um, but when I came in, you know, they're certainly a different kind of operation. So this is not by any means a, a bash on them. I think the world of their company, but I was just an unfamiliar face, though I had purchased, I guess, like my uniform. <laughs> um, I had so much from them, yet it was like I was just brand new to the business. Um, and I think that that dashboard really helps there. Yep. Um, so let's get back to reporting. Because um, honestly, if there's anywhere where I would say the springboard, like, yes, yeah, springboard's so strong in so many different areas. Um, but where I think it really shines is its reporting capabilities. Um, so what would you say... You know, right now, whether it was someone who was on Springboard Retail or um, someone who's on a different system, um, but some metrics that we think that they should be looking at, what would you say is maybe two or three metrics that, of course, are going to be really easy and great to pull in Springboard, but even if they're using something else that you think they should be looking at as they manage their, their inventory and try to grow their business, what, what would you say are a few metrics that they could, they could be analyzing? Yeah, so um, you know, I'll start with some that are a little more universal, and then I'll talk about one that's a little bit specific to us and, and multi-store that I think is important too. But when you look at inventory performance and you look at sales performance, um, by style maybe, sell-through is key. How, how fast is my inventory moving? That, that's sort of key to a lot of decisions that you end up making about, yeah. uh, you know, about markdowns, about movement of inventory. So Looking at your three-week sell-through and sales performance by, um, you know, by style, and your inventory on hand is is a really great report to get familiar with. Um, and what would you say like looks for a like a, a clothing a clothing bit business? Um, what would you say that what should they be looking for? Like if they were going to look at, at their sell-through, um, their inventory term, like what would you say would be a mark of a healthy? business and then if they were to see something and say oh maybe that's not so great sure um what would, what would they do with that yeah so and it's important to say too that you know all of this is relative you know every, every everyone's a little bit different but um and, and sell through actually i should just say for those listening that maybe don't know exactly what it means but sell through is the per- literally this percentage of your inventory that you sold through so if you have mm-hmm. t- 10 dresses and you sell eight of them that's um you know, eighty uh, percent sell through. So that's the, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's that's the general idea yeah. of what sell through is. So, one hundred percent is too much because what that means is that you've got um, high demand for something, um, and you don't have any more product to sell to people. So theoretically, there are people coming in looking for that, and they can't buy it because you don't have it. So, um, and then and then on the other end, you've got you know if it's only ten percent sell through. Um, that's not very good. But time is a factor here as well. So it's if you're looking over three weeks, let's say, um, and you're looking at product that you've at least had on the floor for maybe a month or for, th- for that three-week period. So there's a good amount of time that that product has been there and there's been enough people that have walked by it that were, where they've had an opportunity to buy it. So if over that period, sell-through is less than 10%, you know you have a dud. Um, yeah. And, and, and you know... Um, you know, another way to look at this too is inventory churn. It's kind of another, it's a slightly different metric, but that's the number of times your inventory will turn over in a period. And um, yeah, and, and to kind of add to that, or maybe just hear it from a different side like that, um, we're talking about like 
you sell something, you then buy it again. You sell that, you buy it again. You sell that, you buy it again. I just talked about four turns. Mm-hmm. I guess technically I didn't say that last one sold, so three. <laughs> um, but the amount of times that something's purchased and replaced, whether replaced by the exact same item. Um, so in theory, if you, you know, you're buying by the seasons, you want to have four inventory turns a year. Um, I would actually say that's really low, but that's the example that I'm using is every three months, your inventory needs to be entirely new, entirely fresh. You should have nothing older than 90 days in your store if you only want four turns for the year. I think for a clothing business, something closer to five to six turns is going to be a lot healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, but that helps in your markdown strategy. Once you're looking at that, those turns, you can begin to mark down and you can look at any of your purchasing from, from 90 days ago and anything that came in then, that's what goes on that 70% off clearance rack just to get it out of there free of that cash. Um, but, you know, like you said, I think something that's important for a retailer is that too high of a turn, that 100% too high, if you have a 10, 11, 12 turn on that product, that means you're severely underbought. And that person that came in looking for that item, they didn't quit wanting it right then. Exactly. They likely went somewhere else to get it. Mm-hmm. And you're, so if, you, if your buying isn't, isn't really fitting your metrics, you're losing, you're losing money. So not only could you have less too little turn and your money's tied up in inventory, but you're also losing sales. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, there, there's a sweet spot with, with, with turn uh, and with sell-through that is where you have kind of just the right amount of uh, supply to meet demand that is, is driving enough of those sales. Another key metric, margin, like super, super important. Um, margin is how profitably you've sold your products for. So it's the, you know, the difference between your, your retail price and, mm. and, uh, and cost of goods. There's also a sweet spot with margin. So, you know, ideally in an ideal world, everybody buys everything for full price, right? And, and you, and you have, um, you know, great margins. Um, but that's not really how the world works. Um, there are you're going to have customers that pay full price and don't care. We had that at, at Woodley Pulitzer. It's a, it's a more expensive product, so there were people that would not really care about what the price tag said. Sure, and that's that's a nice that's a nice market if you can, if you can get into that. There are pe- there are lots of people. Most people um, in the world do care, and um, and so you have to find the right balance there of selling at full price. And, and selling at markdown. And depending on what type of retailer you are too, you know, theoretically, right? So there's a certain amount of profit margin that you need just to run your business. You need to make a certain amount of profit so that you get a paycheck, there's there's profit, and people, you pay your employees, you pay for your clothing you or, or other goods, you pay your rent, your lease, um, and, and there needs to be enough profit for everybody to be happy at the end of the day. Um, if you sell things at too much of a markdown, you're not, you're not going to make enough profit or you're going to have to sell Way that more. much more of it, yeah. right? So you, that, that's like the TJ Maxx model, right? They're just like mm-hmm. pushing tons and tons. Amazon. Amazon is another example. Yeah. Super low margin, but super high volume. Um, and that's not the case for, for most retailers is that, that they can do that. Not um, independent retailers, exa- for sure. Exactly. So you you want to be up, you know, from a margin perspective, and this will vary by business, but we always try to be at that, um, I think, in the aggregate, in the average, at that sort of 50-ish mark, um, mm-hmm. 50% gross margin. Um, and, uh, you know, new full price product, I think, was maybe at like 60% would, would be if you bought something yeah. brand new, is it 60? So... 
50 high 40s would would be um where we feel comfortable with in the aggregate. Um, yeah, and that, and that certainly does vary by industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're in the wine business, for example, your margins are so much lower. And um, that's much more high volume too it's, as well. It's high yeah. volume, but it's also lower risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the big difference between um, industries that are lower, lower margin. A lot of times that there's lower risk to those, uh, to those items. Um, you know, something like a, a surfboard doesn't have to keep the same inventory turn um, because there's not really seasonality to like surfboards don't turn over every season. Um, so yes, we want turn for the sake of clearing up money, but that that surfboard doesn't decrease in value yeah. over a six month period. Wine appreciates; it doesn't depreciate. Um, whereas clothing, that devalues. Like you bring that into your store, and you, the clock's ticking um, because of the way the style changes. It's so uh, true. Yeah, and then like some things like home goods are kind of right in between those two, right? Um, and I think you know I want to add on to something that you said about this margin piece, and that's the way that you do manage your your markdowns um i think a lot of retailers don't plan for them and i really think that that it's important to to see markdowns as a strategy in your business to grow revenue and of course clear up assets like it's yes it's clearing out old inventory but it's an expense to your business and it's something that you need to use to grow but something that a lot of retailers do that if i i'm going to say this a hundred times over different episodes but um if you are just doing like 20% off sales across all of your merchandise, you are throwing away money. Um, Because especially like speaking to fashion, where are those 20% off items going to go? That's going to be all your new stuff. And you don't need to be marking any of that down. Because, you know, especially for a lot of um, boutiques that are doing well and retail stores that are doing well, you you have people coming in every day just wanting to see what's in that box that you're about to open. And, and you, there's no reason to mark that stuff down. So instead, and we'll do we'll do episodes that literally just go into these markdown strategies. Um, but instead of marking down everything by 20%, 30%, pick certain categories that maybe um, are suffering in sales or that you're overstocked in and offer discounts on a particular category or a set of items um, when you're trying to do sales. But then incentivize people to, to buy your newest things at full price even if that means that you're going to take a cut in something else that's not selling. Um, so yes, there are appropriate ways to mark down new inventory, like spend over X amount, get get this or that. Um, but I think you know a markdown strategy centered around all-inclusive discounts can be so damaging to a retail business. So you know we talked about turn, we talked about markup, um, and but you said that there's some stuff that, that you think is pretty unique to Springboard. Yeah. Um, what kind of what kind of information are we pulling um, that might be unique and and difficult to get elsewhere? So one concept that we have that uh, is especially unique for multi-store, but also just for operators that have a store and have a website integrated with our system, is this concept of what we call source sales versus location sales. So when you look at sales in Springboard, you actually have two different ways to look at those same numbers, right? You've got source and you've got location. And to explain what that means a little bit, I'll just give an example. Let's say you're in the Boston store and you want customers shopping with you there and they want a dress. You don't have it in stock in Boston, but you you do have it on hand. You can see the real-time inventory. So you can mm-hmm. see that you have it in Nantucket and that customer is standing in Boston and the sales rep in Boston 
places an order for that customer in the system while they're standing there and sends that order to Nantucket um, to, to pick it and pack it and ship it either to the customer's house or maybe back to the Boston store for pickup. So physically, um, the inventory is leaving the Nantucket store, but the order originated and the, and the source of the demand, so from an inventory planning mm-hmm. perspective too, uh, they wanted that dress in Boston. So the order gets sent to Nantucket, they pack it, they ship it, it's gone, and, and everything is done. And when you report in the system by source sales, the credit for that sale goes to Boston, even though Nantucket shipped it and it was their item. Um, there's another metric called location sales that where that credit would go to, to, uh, to Nantucket. Yeah. And so in our stores, at least, um, we would always, you know, we would have sales plans. Our sales reps didn't work on commissions, but there was a sales goal for the store. Yeah. And they would all kind of be a team working to hit that sales goal. And if, um, if they did that, if they ordered something from another store, they would get the credit for that sale. And the playing field was level across all the stores. Everybody could do that. Everybody could use the other store's inventory. So analyzing the difference between the source of the demand and the location where it was actually processed is really interesting. Um, because it tells you some things about inventory patterns, uh, but it also just gives you a really accurate view of where that yeah, source of demand was. Um, and and not a lot of other systems that I'm aware of have that concept. Um, and, and others would make you do like an inventory transfer back to the other store to, for sure. to, to fulfill the order. And so we've, we've, ha- we have a really nice kind of elegant workflow for that, I think. And, and at the end of the day, we give you that, um, you know, we give you that accurate source reporting. Another quick example would just be the web, for example. Like, let's say someone orders something on the web, uh, and they come into a store and they return that web item in the store to Boston. You don't want to punish Boston's sales plan for the day yeah. uh, because someone bought something on the web and is returning it. So when you go in the system, because all of that data is in there, all that web data, you go and find that invoice and you return against it. And we actually credit that return back to the web. So we lower the web's source sales for that day, and we don't punish Boston. And hopefully then Boston goes and sells that customer you know, three or four other items, to, to, and they'll get the credit for those sales. So it really helps also with the sales staff, especially if they're working against a plan, to know that they're getting credit when credit is due. Absolutely. You know, so I, I've really enjoyed chatting through you know, the ways that people... Um, are using Springboard and, and generally some of the tools that that people can take to what they may already have. Um, you know, I, I definitely want to give you a minute. You know, we've talked about Springboard, but um, you know, I did ask you like, let's not be super salesy about it. But um, go ahead and take like sixty seconds. And if someone um, was like, "Man, this sounds really interesting," what would they do? Where would they go? And why should they call you? Sure, awesome. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, so SpringboardRetail.com is our is our website. Um, and if if you're a, if you're a multi um, even if you're not or if, but if you want to be maybe if you're a growing retailer whether you have a single store or multiple stores um, uh, and, and an integrated website we're we're a retail management system designed for specialty retail um, we're laser focused on specialty so we don't do restaurants we don't do food we're really like and, and we're we've talked a lot about it but we're built by retailers. Um, and we were you know, fashion retailers, so we really understand um, what a fashion retailer needs. So we've got a really nice, easy to use, but also very powerful and robust system that's going to support you know POS transactions, order management across stores, 
um, you know, uh, integration to the web for orders as well. Um, all that inventory management we talked about and reporting and analytics. Plus, we interface to best in class, you know, uh, e-commerce systems like uh, Big Commerce, Shopify, Magento, um, accounting and QuickBooks. Uh, email marketing and MailChimp and, and many others. So we're sort of the operational heartbeat for you. And um, if you're not getting that data and that reporting that you need, or you're struggling with inventory management, um, uh, we're I think we're a really powerful retail management system. That's great. Well, I mean, I appreciate you chatting with us. It really has been um, awesome getting to know Springboard Retail, and I hope our listeners. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed getting to know them as well. Um, if you have not um, joined our Facebook group where you can connect with independent retailers um, across the country facing different issues that you can get help um, from each other, um, I definitely encourage you to ask to join that group. And then, of course, um, go to retailinitiative.com for free and exclusive resources, um, things you can do to grow your business. Um, and, and definitely subscribe to this podcast so you can catch future episodes. Alan, thank you. Thank you. To hopefully uh, catch us next time. So have a great day. Thank you.